What happens when an experienced scammer scams a novice scammer? Today, we're about to find out. Joe Hunt, the founder of the Billionaire Boys Club, was living the high life with other people's money, but believed that his pal, Ron Levin, was taking care of his Ponzi scheme earning investments for him. The trouble is, the money never existed. Not only is this an episode that features two scams, but about two murders for profit and all the twists and turns in between. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Prism of the Past. My name is Blair, and today we're going to be talking about the Billionaire Boys Club. Please note that murder will be discussed throughout this episode, so if that's something that you find particularly upsetting, then I don't recommend this episode for you. Otherwise, let's get into it. Joseph Henry Gamsky was born in 1959 in Chicago to a lower middle-class family. He was rather unpopular and very quiet, according to his classmates and his father, Lawrence, had a series of small, unsuccessful businesses in the San Fernando Valley. Lawrence dreamed of becoming wealthy, allegedly telling his son, Joe, I'm not your father, I'm your teacher, and setting extremely high expectations for their youngest child. Thankfully, Joe was able to live up to them, as his mother was able to help get Joe into the prestigious Harvard School on a scholarship. Not Harvard the College, but Harvard School for Boys, now known as the Harvard Westlake School. Even though Joe wasn't rich, he was bumping elbows with some wealthy kids in Beverly Hills. It's been said that Joe himself was reportedly an unremarkable student, aside from his talent on the debate team. Unfortunately, that success was short-lived when in 1975, he was thrown out of the USC Summer Debate Institute after fabricating evidence. After high school graduation, Joe briefly attended the USC or University of Southern California, only to drop out and reinvent himself completely, taking on the name Joe Hunt and becoming a floor trader on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. That too didn't last though. The Washington Post claims that he was suspended for trading other people's money, but the Chicago Tribune claims that Joe attempted a bold but transparent futures wiring swindle. Though this may not be his most notorious scam, it was his first. Marsha Clark, notorious prosecutor and victim's advocate known for prosecuting O.J. Simpson was featured in the Billionaire Boys Club episode on the first 48, where she interviewed journalist Randall Sullivan, who'd spoken to Joe Hunt and his associates in the past. Sullivan Randall says that during the timeframe, Joe had come to believe his own lies. He was convinced that he'd find success even if he didn't actually have any evidence other than self-confidence. Sullivan Randall stated, quote, He became Joe Hunt by changing his name, wanting people to think that he might be associated with the Hunt brothers who were at the time, the most notorious billionaires in the country. He would leverage his assets and so the market could tip against him and he'd lose everything, which he did. And he had promised all of these investors what con men always do. You know, he guaranteed them certain returns and new investors would put in certain money and he would put it out. He wasn't doing it just to steal. He was doing it in the belief that he was going to make millions and millions. He believed in his own brilliance that much, end quote. One of his investors filed a formal complaint and it was for Joe. He headed back to LA with $4 in his pocket. Joe Hunt didn't give up on his dream. Upon his return, he instead decided to think of a new creative way to make it all possible, the Billionaire Boys Club. Although his club became known as the Billionaire Boys Club, Joe originally named it after the Bombay Bicycle Club, one of his favorite restaurants. Immediately, Joe began recruiting people for his club. He dated Brooke Roberts, the daughter of a successful music and movie record and motion picture producer, Bobby Roberts, and recruited other young men from wealthy families to hang out with him and in the hopes that they would ultimately give him access to their parents' earnings. 
Dean Carney said that he felt complimented to be included in the group. These were all intelligent, capable, and motivated people. And Joe Hunt, the leader of these young men, seemed to have a messianic hold on them. He wooed members into the fold with his charisma. And though he may have been a control freak, he continually spoke about turning negative things into positives. He earned trust by delivering on his promises. But people didn't just want to be around Joe. They were actually fascinated by him. One of the first women to join the BBC was Alison Weiss, daughter of film editor, Steve Weiss. And she convinced her father to invest $20,000 in June of 1983. When Weiss received a profit disbursement of $4,000 a month later, he added another 30,000 to his portfolio. That's how Joe worked, through the long con. He wouldn't simply take money and run. He was operating a Ponzi scheme. He knew that he could pay people off or make them believe they were profiting. And the more they would continue to invest, the longer it would take for them to see the forest for the trees. One businessman, Chester Brown, even deposited a quarter of a million dollars with Joe. Brown was fascinated by the young man's faculty and figures recalled his wife, Mary, and watched him add, subtract, multiply, and divide whole columns of five and six digit numbers in his head. The Browns brought in more investors. From the minute you started telling them about it, everybody wanted to believe, Mary Brown said. The BBC members drove expensive cars, Mercedes, BMWs, and Porsches. So they looked as if they had money to burn. They were incredibly close-knit and Joe could sweet talk just about anyone within these wealthy communities. One former club member said that Joe wasn't just a guiding factor of their lives or an older brother to them, but Joe also told his friends that he graduated USC in less than two years and became a successful trader, giving the illusion of credentials. They believed in his ability to make them all rich. Parents were turning out their pockets for him. The Carneys in particular giving $175,000. Joe created subsidiary after subsidiary like Microgenesis, Westcars, Financial Futures and International Marketing and the Fire Safety Association of America. None of them were real. In actuality, none of it was real. Microgenesis meant to build and market milling machines only ever built one machine and investors never saw their money again. Joe's companies were complete shams built so that he could live the high life. But by 1984, he'd lost $900,000 of his friend's parents' money. Thankfully, Joe had a solution, his new friend, Ron Levin. When Marcia Clark interviews Ron Levin's closest friends, they describe him as a prankster, recounting a story about him not paying for gallery paintings and getting into a funeral home under false pretenses. Others have called him unlikable, unsympathetic, and a con man himself. One story recounts how Levin used to introduce his maid, Blanche Sturkley, and her husband, Christopher, as devoted family retainers whom he had inherited from his grandmother. In actuality, he met the couple shortly after they moved to LA, and within a couple of weeks, he swindled them into an investment opportunity. Apparently, Blanche and Christopher put up all their savings to purchase Ron's Rolls Royce. Ron decided after taking their money that he didn't want to sell it. And Blanche had to literally beg Mark Levin, Ron's stepfather, to get a fraction of their money back. Ron then arranged to cover the rest of his debt by paying the Sturkeys $900 a month to work as his servants. If I had been Blanche, I would have sued because this seems absolutely ridiculous. And I've got no idea how Ron basically held their money hostage and forced them to earn it back by serving him. Needless to say, I think it's pretty clear that he wasn't exactly a model citizen and that didn't bother Joe one bit, which Joe seemed to be like, okay, that's fine. When Joe and Ron first met in June, 1983, Ron was an experienced scammer, whereas Joe had only just begun to wet his feet. Apparently Ron promised Joe that he'd give him $5 million if he invested it in the commodities market, according to the Washington Post. 
Hunt parlayed the money on paper into $13 million, only to discover in the fall that it had been no 5 million. Levin had convinced a brokerage firm that he was making a documentary about commodities trading and had helped him set up bogus accounts in Hunt's name. The sheer gall that Ron Levin must have had to convince a brokerage firm to do this is astounding. Jack Friedman from Clayton Brokerage said that Ron had well over a quarter of a million dollars worth of camera equipment and had introduced himself as the assignment editor. He painted this just as a harmless deception to give the documentary a dramatic feel, certainly nothing fraudulent. It was all virtual play money, nothing real, just numbers. This was great for Ron because he could just continue to take money and trust from people without actually having to produce results. But for Joe, it meant that he didn't have a penny to use to pay back his investors. When he finally grew desperate enough, he called Clayton Brokerage. It was Friedman who revealed the whole thing was a sham when he asked if they ever did the documentary and told a confused Joe that the money wasn't real. Joe became paranoid, furious, even to the point of alienating people from his once close club. Joe spent nearly two months chasing Ron Levin's last promise to him, Dean recalled, then let it go. He said that since two or $300,000 wasn't going to solve his problems, he wasn't going to waste too much time trying to get that money but he said he was going to get around to killing Levin one of those days. By the end of April, 1984, Joe saw his situation coming to a head. Financial futures quarterly disbursement was due in June and he had close to 150 investors to pay off now. From a high of about 30, Billionaire Boys Club membership collapsed to a core of 16. Those who did leave, Dean said, either because their parents had a very strong pull and yanked them out or because they got scared, scared of Joe. Joe had begun referring to the BBC as his family and to other members as his children. His aphorisms were delivered now as public proclamations, codes of conduct for true believers. The first rule was never feel sorry for anything you do. And the second was it's all right to lie if you know the truth. It's widely believed that when Ron went missing on June 6th, 1984, Joe must've had something to do with it, though we will touch on that more in just a little bit. He definitely had reason to be enraged at Ron, plus he still wanted Ron's money to pay back the people he had scammed. On June 7th, the day after Ron vanished, a couple of strange things took place. The first is that Joe tried to cash a check in Ron Levin's name for well over $1 million from a Swiss bank account. There's been some debate about whether John wrote this check willingly or if he was coerced, though many believe the latter. Either way, Joe wasn't getting his money. There was only $40 in the account not nearly enough to pay back the rich people of Beverly Hills that Joe said he'd swindled. Secondly, Ron Levin checked into the prestigious Plaza Hotel in New York City on the other side of the country, or at least someone posing as him did. As it turns out, it was Joe Hunt's bodyguard, James Pittman. He racked up nearly $2,000 on a hotel bill, which was pretty impressive for the 80s, and had Ron Levin's overdrawn credit card on file, and he caused a massive scene while trying to flee. Hotel security surrounded him at the Palm Court restaurant. Rather than surrender, James assumed a karate stance and when attempting to escape, he smashed through the revolving doors in the lobby. Joe Hunt bailed out his friend and bodyguard quickly and easily enough, paying almost $5,000 to do so. The question quickly became, did Ron Levin disappear or did something unsavory happen to him? Throughout Marsha Clark's interviews, people answer that question in a variety of ways. Some say he was close with his mother and would never leave her like that. Despite Ron being a con man, he also thought highly of himself and was not one to run away or hide. Another man claims that he and his company had been scammed by Ron into loaning him all that expensive camera equipment we mentioned earlier. Ron was set to face charges for that in June, 1984, but he vanished, so it seemed convenient. 
For Joe, he knew he just needed more money somehow now that Ron Levin had failed him. Luckily for Joe, yet another opportunity arose that year when Reza Eslaminia joined the BBC. His father, Hediet, was purportedly an extremely wealthy man and Reza, who hated him, seemed all too eager to extort and kidnap his own father to get him to sign over his riches. Arben Dosti, also known as Ben, who also introduced Reza to the BBC and Dean Carney, were also keen on implementing this plan. And they had no regard for Reza's father's life. What happened afterwards was extremely brutal and cold-hearted. On July 30th, 1984, Joe and Ben dressed as UPS men and went to the front door of Hediet's condo carrying a large trunk. They jumped him, put him in the trunk and loaded it into a truck. Dean and Ben, who were supposed to handcuff him and give him more chloroform, were so frightened hearing his screams that they couldn't bear to open the trunk. Instead, Dean poked holes in the trunk with a screwdriver so that Hediat could breathe. His screams were so loud that Dean, in his panic state, thought they were loud enough to be heard by passing cars. So they put tape over the holes, ultimately suffocating him to death. According to Randall Sullivan, the journalist featured in the first 48, Reza went to see his father's girlfriend afterwards in an attempt to collect some of his father's money and told her, I knew my father loved you. His use of using the past tense loved sent up a lot of red flags in her head, but it wasn't until Jim Pittman decided to start talking and confess to the killing that the BBC were reported to the FBI. Not only did Joe and the BBC kill Hediat, but Reza wasn't even telling the truth when he claimed his father was wealthy. His father had lost almost all of it. The BBC's numbers thinned even further as investors came knocking, demanding answers. You might think that Joe would flee, but instead he almost had an eerie calm about him. I had met very few investors, Mary Brown said, and I was astounded by the caliber of people who had been taken in. There were attorneys and doctors, writers from the studios, producers, and directors. Financial futures assets were frozen pending the SEC investigation, Joe announced, but he offered his personal promise that every trading partner would receive his or her money before the end of the year. Three prominent investors challenged Hunt, pounding on the table, demanding the truth. Joe never flinched, Mary Brown remembered, not even when an elderly woman who said she had invested her life savings broke into hysterics. He just had this calm. I can't believe the calm. Hunt was in total control of the room, his secretary remembered. I was sitting by his side and it was like he was not shaken by anything. Joe simply insisted the BBC would be fine over and over, but obviously it wasn't. And he didn't have any money to make those claims to his clients to begin with. Soon, Ben, Joe, James, Reza, and Dean were all arresting connection to the murder. And Hediet's body was found in July, 1984 in Soledad Canyon. When the murder of Hediet went to trial, Dean Carney was given full immunity in exchange for his testimony and revealed Ron's murder. Yet it wasn't just Hediat's murder that came to light, but the murder of Ron Levin as well. Carney testified that Joe Hunt told him the story of how he and Pittman ambushed Ron at his home, handcuffed him and shoved his face down on the bed and shot him in the back of the head. They claimed to have disfigured Levin with a shotgun and said that, quote, his brain jumped out of his skull and fell on his chest, end quote. They dumped Ron's body in the Soledad Canyon, just as they had done with Hediat's. Dean also testified that Joe even threw Ron's gold Bulgari watch down a storm drain that night, claiming that it was a shame to get rid of a $12,000 watch, but he didn't want to mess around with evidence like that. Because of the money Ron owed for the photography equipment, Joe figured no one would bother looking for him anyway. Jeff Raymond, one of the newer BBC members who'd only invested $20,000, had been one of the first to speak out after Hunt allegedly told the group he killed Ron. 
However, aside from the testimony and BBC members claiming that Hunt confessed to murdering Levin and Pittman, there was very little physical evidence. Hedieth's body was recovered, but not Ron's. One such piece of physical evidence was a to-do list that detectives found at Levin's home that seemed to be the smoking gun confirming all of this. Closed blinds, scan for tape recorder, tape mouth, handcuff, put gloves on, explain situation, kill dog, the list read. It seemingly rattled off exactly everything they intended to do to Levin. Hunt said it was a list left there to scare him, but prosecutors weren't buying that. Plus, Detective Les Zoller, who led the investigation into the BBC, claims that Joe had been extremely cocky throughout his interview. But the moment she put the to-do list in front of him, he went silent, seemingly disturbed or upset that it had been found. Another page left alongside the list was a map, a crude drawing of the area of the Soledad Canyon. The list may have the purpose of scaring Levin, but what about the map? Unfortunately, because there was no body to be found, his case proved especially difficult. In fact, some argued that Ron wasn't dead at all, but that they'd seen him alive and well in various parts throughout the world. Connie Girard and her husband claimed to have spotted him in Greece, while a maitre d' in Beverly Hills, Nadia spotted him getting into a convertible years after he supposedly died. I looked over and I clearly saw Ron Levin, she testified. I said, oh my God, there's Ron Levin. I haven't seen that guy in a long time. Robbie Robinson, a former police officer for News City Service, testified he was waiting in line to see the movie Crocodile Dundee in the city's Westwood section in 1986 when Levin stepped from the crowd, walked up to him and said, hi, Robbie. This was surprising because I hadn't seen him in two and a half years and I heard he was missing, Robinson said. Ivan Werner, a funeral director, identified Levin as a mourner at the Westwood funeral in 1987. He said the man had white hair, a close cropped beard and was impeccably groomed. Warner said he saw Levin's picture in the paper several months ago and recognized him as the mourner. Understandably, there's been a lot of doubt cast on these testimonies. Still, between Ron's disappearance and Hediat's horrible death, this case should be clear cut for those involved, right? Well, the trial for these cases has become infamous in its own right. Ben and Reza were found guilty of second degree murder, kidnapping and conspiracy to commit grand theft in 1988 for their involvement in the Hediat case. Jim Pittman pleaded guilty to accessory to Levin's murder and was released on time served. Two judiciaries failed to reach a verdict and Joe Hunt was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for Levin's murder. According to Jim's defense lawyer, Jeff Brody, his strategy was to make Jim look like he'd been manipulated by Joe. Although Jim was the muscle of the group, large and intimidating, he was a likable, nice guy. As he was dressed in bright sweaters and pleasant to talk to, the jury responded to him well versus Ron Levin, who many people had been scammed by. To an extent, as Marsha and Brody put it, trials are popularity contests, and Jim Pittman was able to win the popularity contest in that regard. Yet, Joe's trial for Hediat's murder was different. After already receiving a guilty verdict, he decided to defend himself. To many people's shock, Joe actually managed to win the jurors over, and his trial ended in a deadlock. It took 120 witnesses, 600 exhibits, 9,000 hours of reading law books and a jail cell and cost almost $3 million, but Joe Hunt pulled it off. One juror even said that Joe has good in him and he should have his wings again and be able to fly once the trial ended. Although this wasn't a capital case as the prosecution never sought the death penalty, Joe had masterfully defended himself. He claimed there was no kidnapping, but instead the BBC boys were smuggling Hediat to help him escape from Iranian agents. And Carney alone killed Hediat after he arrived in Los Angeles. No matter how believable you find this defense, the prosecution was to an extent fed up with Joe. 
Why try him again for this when he was already in prison for life for killing Ron? They elected not to retry the case and it was dismissed. Though there's far more evidence in the Hediat case, a body, for example. It was the Levin case that Joe went to prison for, but this story is still far from over. Joe Pittman, knowing he couldn't be tried again, decided to speak out years later and brought the case to light once more. And before we continue on into the speculation, new documentaries and new information that has been released, let's take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. You've got back-to-back meetings, errands to run and chores to take care of. What's the secret to clearing your to-do list? Well, it could be a little help from DoorDash. You can get dinner, household essentials and everything on your grocery list delivered. Because one of the worst things that can ever happen to you is you do go to the grocery store, you do pick up some foods and you're gonna make this awesome dinner and you get home and you forgot an ingredient. Well, DoorDash can help you pick that up. Along with the restaurants you love, you can now obviously get groceries and other household essential items delivered with DoorDash, get drinks, snacks, and other goods in under an hour. Ordering is easy and your items will be left safely outside your door when you choose contactless delivery drop-off. For a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code PRISM. That's 25% off up to a $10 value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code PRISM. Don't forget, that's code PRISM for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change, terms apply. This episode is also sponsored by Honey because we all shop online and we've all seen the promo code field taunt us at checkout. But thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. I was recently buying domain names, which that sounds really weird. I was buying stuff because I'm planning new projects for next year. So to be announced later on, but I was buying domain names for a new project that I'm starting to work on. And Honey was there and gave me a discount on that. And I was kind of shocked. I was like, wow, I didn't know it goes that far. And it's really easy when you're shopping and you go to checkout online, the Honey button just drops down and all you have to do is click apply coupons, wait a few seconds, Honey searches for coupons and then applies the best one it can find and just watch the price drop. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's free and it installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. And I'd never recommend something that I don't actually use. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com prism. That's joinhoney.com prism. It began with an elite group of Beverly Hills rich kids. It's the cliche that it's tough to follow a successful parent. It's murder. Drawn together by a mesmerizing young genius. $14 million in six weeks. That's just a start. They have no idea what we can do. He taught them his way of doing business. Series and documentaries about the BBC are common. As early as 1987, before the trials were even over, NBC released a miniseries discussing the events. The LA Times did a piece on this and quoted NBC Vice President Donald Zachary as calling Joe Hunt libel-proof after Hunt's lawyers claimed the NBC was interfering with their client's right to a fair trial. Jeff Brody, Pittman's attorney stated, "'We call it the hated NBC miniseries. "'It could have a disastrous effect on my case.'" To televise a dramatization of the events before all the cases have been decided is highly prejudicial and highly irresponsible. As we know, the NBC miniseries didn't seem to affect Pittman, considering that he was released on time served. 
Instead, what really affected Pittman was the fact that he actually confessed to killing Ron Levin years later in a 1993 interview. During the program, A Current Affair, Pittman said, yes, I did kill Ron Levin, but I can't be tried for it twice. Understandably, people were horrified by this. Here was a man confessing to a deplorable, brutal act and no one could do anything about it. Although Pittman led detectives to where the body had been dumped, Ron's body was never recovered. A few years later, Pittman died of kidney failure. And three years after that, there was yet another update in the case when Reza's charges were dismissed. Reza, convicted of taking part in murdering his own father, had continually denied ever wanting to torture his father for money. At one point, he leapt out of his chair and called Carney a quote, goddamn liar in the courtroom. One source explains. Dosti and Reza were convicted of murder in 1988, but those convictions were overturned 10 years later on the grounds that jurors heard a tape never entered as evidence. Facing a new trial, Dosti pled guilty in August to this year of manslaughter and kidnapping and was sentenced to the time he was already served, 12 years and eight months. That only left Reza, who said yesterday that while the dismissal leaves him free, he always wanted a trial. I wanted a trial so badly because the perception that people have is based on a miniseries that is not at all accurate, he says. There is a tremendous injustice that was part of this case and there was outrageous misconduct by the government. And all I want to come out of that in the trial, but I guess it won't. I miss my dad. I really, really, really miss my dad. And I blame so much Joseph Hunt, Dean Carney, and the BBC for killing my dad. And I equally blame myself for being a stupid, naive young man who boasted about his father in a den of lions. Now that Dean Carney is in witness protection, a new trial is not possible. I can't say for sure whether Reza planned to hurt his father or if he had just been supremely stupid and bragged about his wealth to the wrong people. I'm not sure that we'll ever know. More people have begun to speculate that Carney was the true villain of the BBC, but prosecutors made a mistake by letting him go. The 2018 film Billionaire Boys Clubs portrays this. The same year the movie was released, Joe filed another appeal, claiming that his story is similar to the boy who cried wolf fable. Because he's lied so many times and been branded as a scammer, he's recognized that now, when he claims to be telling the truth, no one's going to believe him. He also insists that he's a reformed man who now teaches yoga and meditation in prison, he's acted as a chapel clerk, and he started a project at Folsom State Prison that addresses how trauma in an inmate's past can lead to violent behavior. Chaplain Dennis Marino even said that Joe made his ministry in prison worthwhile. One website called Free Joe Hunt has been set up to do exactly as the name suggests and free Joe from prison. They're even offering a reward of $100,000 for evidence that exonerates Joe, such as another Ron Levin sighting. But what about the sightings that already exist? Has anything come of those? The short answer is no. And the long answer is that it simply doesn't make sense. If Ron was alive, why would he stay in LA? Plus the funeral director claimed that he saw Ron's gold teeth when Ron had gold fillings, not something you can see from across the room. Ron may have had ample reasons to fake his own death, but there isn't evidence that he actually did. On the Free Joe Hunt website, they insist that Levin's upstairs neighbor didn't hear any gunshots or scuffle the night Ron was allegedly murdered, despite having the windows open. A search of the BMW that Pittman claims Ron was transported in shows no signs of forensic evidence and Levin's hairdresser testified that Levin asked him to dye his hair shortly before his disappearance, which was extremely unlikely of him. In 1996, LA Times writer Alan Abrahamson speculated on the topic, primarily focusing on a sighting in Greece by the Girards. Jerry Girard, in particular, built a pool for his father of Joe Hunt's former girlfriend. Joe lived there before the verdict was announced, so did the Girards, and in a roundabout way, have a connection to Joe Hunt. 
The free Joe Hunt website largely seems to be run by Joe's family, and I haven't seen it gain much traction in my research. In September, 2020, they unsuccessfully petitioned for a compassionate release and sentence reduction because of Joe's age and vulnerability to COVID, citing multiple trial irregularities. It's true, the cases between the 1987 miniseries and various twists and turns this case has taken. It's an irregular one, to be sure, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was mishandled. Letters from chaplains and prison officials have advocated for Joe, and one correctional officer says that in their opinion, Hunt has no inclinations to reoffend. Detective Zoller, on the other hand, says she isn't surprised that Joe's manipulations have continued in prison, implying that he's exactly where he belongs. Though the extent of Joe's involvement in either case may never fully be known, because of his scams and the death that surrounds him, he justifiably remains a controversial, infamous figure to this day. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you learned something new. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. I wanna thank you for spending some of your time here with me today. I appreciate it. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye.